Hi, this is Candy here in Toronto for and, the agency. And Eugene right beside her in Toronto, yeah. unusually. Unusually. And we have a guest today, Lauren Willette, who is a doctoral student in the Heritage Studies Program at Arkansas State University. Hi, Lauren. Hello. It's so great to be here with you guys. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're really pleased. I, I was just saying how, you know, I think we have a stereotype of what Ozark region is. The TV show has entered our consciousness for lots and lots of people. And um, you were referred by a former guest of ours that I met in New Mexico, Lisa. And she said, we had to talk to you and find out more about the Ozarks. So thank you. Well, um, thank you. Um, Lisa, Lisa's a fan of mine, just as I am of, of hers. She's really wonderful. Um, yeah, I've done a lot of my studies in heritage um, with regards to Arkansas and the Ozark region in uh, general. And my dissertation is about a naturalist and writer who was from the Ozarks and used some traditional remedies. Her name was Billy Joe Tatum. So um, yeah, so I, I've studied the popular culture and, and media and things like that of the region quite a bit. And I currently work for the University of Arkansas, um, uh, the libraries division of University of Arkansas for Arkansas folk and traditional arts, which is the state folk arts program. And I'm the folk arts survey coordinator. So I'm really kind of all over the state of Arkansas looking to talk to folk artists and tradition bearers, which could be anything from like beekeeping or astrology to quilting or sign painting, just lots of different things. Interesting. Super cool. The, really up here and I'm from Ontario, Canada, and um, I've never been to the Ozarks. I have a little bit of familiarity through traditional music because I play banjo and fiddle. And I'm I'm familiar with, for instance, that Grandpa and Ramona Jones had a, a, a dinner theater there. And uh, a, a friend of mine, the late Kathy Barton, used to work at the music store there. So I've heard some stories about the Ozarks mm -hmm. um, from, from her. And I'm also quite familiar with a fiddler down there from Ava, Missouri, um, whose name was Bob Holt, who played with a fellow named lv dooms and they played the fastest old time music i've ever heard well um you know i old time music is not technically my specialty but um i will say this we one musician that i can recommend or one one group that's like quite new and current is called the ho cakes um and one one member is named um Allison Williams mm -hmm. and and she's a, a master old time musician who's traveled and toured internationally. Um and Thank so you. Arkansas Folk and Traditional Arts has worked with her a little bit. Um and then the other members are Rachel Reynolds who's a folklorist in her own right and um I think Allison Langston is the other person. So um they're traveling around right now. And then Violet Hensley is a really famous uh, female fiddle player from the Ozarks. And I'm, I can't recall right now if she did bluegrass or old time. You know her? No, no, oh, I God. don't. Okay, that's No, exciting. I don't. Um, I've, I've heard that um, there's also a, a tradition of play party music in the Ozarks because um, instruments are the work of the devil. 
So mm -hmm. I guess if you sing them instead of play them, you know, maybe you only do a few hundred million years in purgatory. I think most people would, well, I think it would depend on <laughs> the time period and uh, the, the particular religious group. You know, wow. I grew up Church of Christ, so um, playing instruments in worship was considered uh, sinful, but, you know, my grandpa played the banjo on the square in Mountain View for... <laughs> for many years. So, um, and that was fine and, and not a problem because, uh, you know, there was a difference in doing it in church and doing it on the square. Ah, um, that makes sense. Pretty interesting. Yeah. So, you know, and, and there is some, you know, um, hill folk religion that is, that is pretty conservative and, and has a very set, uh, standard of rules, but, um, yeah. So. Yeah, well, it's interesting you should say that because it's it's kind of feeding off something I want to kind of introduce, which you're going to be able to qualify or clarify, is that the Ozarks is about five states, Illinois, Kansas, um, Missouri, right, Arkansas, and um, Oklahoma. Oklahoma, thank you so much. Oklahoma, I, I always thought was the only place where Ozarks was, and I thought it was, uh, you know, a camping uh, recreational area. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about that, and it ties into the arts and the folk art, I'm sure, is that it's a geographical and cultural definition as well, and it's highlighted by isolation, seclusion, and migration. And I, I'm sure you might have something to say about that. Um, well, I think that most of the Ozarks, most of the region is in Missouri, mm -hmm. um, Arkansas, and then Oklahoma, um, you know, and the, the parts, the, the little bits that touch Kansas and Illinois are, are smaller. And I don't really think people in those states identify with mm -hmm. the Ozarks as much. Is um, that the Southern chunk of Illinois? That's that's part of the Ozarks, is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, but I don't, I, I, I don't know. From what from what I see, it's mostly, you know, most of the research and and um, identity, like cultural identity, is really in Missouri and Arkansas. Yeah, uh, yeah. and that could be really late claim. Yeah, I could be that I'm thinking of an indigenous aspect of it. Yeah, of no, the, there. I mean, yeah, there are people that that. There are there is a small piece of Illinois that is technically part of the region. I just mean the state as a whole. You're not going to find a lot of people no. that no. identify with Ozark culture in yeah. Illinois. It's just such I, a small I, area. I've yeah. heard um, musicians in parts of Illinois they they identify as Little Egypt. <laughs> yeah, right, especially oh, yeah. around Cairo. Sure, I know around there. Uh, so okay, so. Tell us a little bit about being, studying folkways, folk life, folk arts. Well, um, I think first that I would say as far as folk life, all those words are sort of interchangeable in a way. So as, as far as folk life is concerned, you know, it's sort of the study of everyday life, everyday living, um, why people do the things that they do. Um, and when you when you put that focus on traditions and arts, um, it, it can be really interesting. But we also have to remember that it's not just something that's happening or that happened in the past, that traditions and culture and folk arts and all these things are 
from communities. They spring forth from communities naturally based on um, maybe the region, maybe the the immigrant groups that have moved there or the indigenous groups that were there or whatever. But um, these, these traditions are, are always evolving and new. So, you know, like we, we consider um, drag a, a folk art oh. um, at Arkansas Folk and Traditional Arts. And, and not everybody um, in the state agrees with that definition, but it is an art that rises up from a particular community and is passed along by community members, right? So that's like a, a really more new example. Um, but, you know, the Ozarks also have um, in in certain areas like Fayetteville has a, a fairly large Marshallese um, community. And so does Pocahontas, which is sort of on the other edge. Uh, and I will just tell you guys now, I know a lot more about Arkansas than any other okay. <laughs> part of the region. Um would there's you also, you know, um, um, some Hmong groups. There's a fairly decent sized um, Hispanic population. So there are, um, the, the Ozarks get pegged as mostly white and it is mostly white, but um, there are some other groups that we pay attention to. And, and in the seventies, we also had back to the Landers um, who came and settled here and and had intentional communities and things like that. So that's a really interesting history to look into and um there were also quite a few um african-american and black communities after the civil war ended um that you know have a their their history is um not does not end well um but those communities were there and often don't get talked about they're they're part of our culture so Sure. Well, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, yeah. So, you know, different communities formed. Often Black communities in the region would be named um, based on churches rather than um, people. So I think I have a list of some towns. Um, but one in, in Arkansas was um, in Laycross. Uh, Batesville still has, um, which is in the Ozarks, still has that population. But in after Reconstruction started to end and the Union began to move out of the South in general, um, and and Confederates began to win political positions again, then what would happen in the Ozarks, which was um, unique to our area, is that rather than um, like a singular lynching, you would see that maybe that type of violence, but then entire communities would be just completely and fully expelled within a matter of a few days. Um, and that was between like 1890 and 1910. And then there are some holdout communities that lasted until um, agriculture and farming really became so mechan mechanical that that everybody who did that type of work was moving of any race. So, you know, there's all that type of history mm -hmm. um, that, that unfortunately doesn't often get included when we talk about the region. And, and um, 
Yeah. So one of my projects right now is I'm talking to some African-American people in Pocahontas and just sort of slowly trying to record the history of school integration in that community and that county, which is Randolph County in Arkansas. Very interesting. Uh, when you when you're approaching people in, in that community, um, how do you go about that? How do you get people to want to talk to you? That must be um, quite a quite an interesting exercise. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. Um, I have made friends with someone um, who runs a museum. Her name's Pat Johnson, and the museum is the Eddie May Heron Center. So you could look up heroncenter.org um, if you're interested. And um, I've made I've made good friends with her and and we've been talking, um, you know, over the course of like a year, I would say. And so when I can and get invited to go to um, gatherings where there will be other African-Americans, um, then I go and I take my card and I just explain that I'm documenting for the sake of documenting, because I think it's important and want that information to be recorded, uh, which is true. That is my goal. Um, so I'm being just pretty transparent. And lots of times people um, do want to talk and they want, you know, they want to share the, their experiences because they know that it's important as well. And, you know, so you just have to sort of be transparent and build a relationship over time and keep coming back and showing up and doing what you said you were going to do. Um, you know, so it's, it's a, it's a, Doing uh, field work as like a public folklorist is just something that where you're really building relationships uh, mm -hmm. of a certain type, you know, it's, it's, uh, you're not like out like looking for new best friends, but sure. it, it's a, yeah, it's like a, a network and a relationship more than a transaction. It would be fascinating to learn um, the stories from African-Americans from, from that area um, seeing as there aren't, aren't as many, um, black people there now. Or, uh, or accounts. Yeah. Or and accounts. I, I know in, in Appalachia, we've lost a lot of black string band music, mm -hmm. uh, in, in part because the musicians, well, can make more money playing blues, um, and moving, moving to cities. Um, but, uh, the, there, there was, I know at one time, a, a really thriving old time, community and now in, in Appalachia there's hardly any black mm -hmm. fiddlers mm -hmm. right yeah as as people move and and uh have to struggle to you know meet their needs it's hard to to continue those folk traditions or to pass them down you That's know what I mean point. yes that is a good point it costs it costs money to be um creative it, it does and it takes up time that you could be earning money too Right. I said, my, oh, I'm sorry. I said my grandpa was a, a banjo player. You know, he he actually learned banjo after he retired. Oh, uh, and then like, or, or as an older person, maybe not after he retired, but after his kids were grown. Oh, wow. um, and and that movement had kind of started but the folk movement of the, you know, 60s, I guess the 70s really um, had started back up. And so. Yeah. So, you know, that it's the same type of thing, um, except, you know, depending on where people happen to move to or live, those opportunities may not be there. Did you, you mentioned something martialites? Yeah, the, there's a martial, there's a fairly large martialese community or a few communities of, of 
Marshall people from the Marshall Islands that live in Northwest Arkansas. Um, I also with Pat Johnson at the Eddie May Herring Center, I recently um, helped plan a Juneteenth event, which um, anyway, the, and we, so we did a multicultural fashion show and had a a woman, an African-American woman from Little Rock come in and then the Marshallese community did cultural fashions there. Cool. And that was in Pocahontas. Um, yeah, but there's also, you know, some some groups that, that do cultural events in Fayetteville. And then um, I've also talked to the Hmong Association that's in Northwest Arkansas around Fayetteville as well. Do you have a favorite tradition in arts or music or candle making or knife making or any of the what you oh, might be studying? Do you, what's your um, favorite? You don't mind us asking. I would say that uh, naturalism and folk medicine is my favorite. I don't practice mm. um, currently, <laughs> um, yeah. but I'm always interested in talking to people who do those practices and carry those traditions forward. So that, you know, that's just one of my interests and, and um, gardening and you know, all of that, that type of food ways that is very utilitarian more than, than for show. Decorative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or foraging. That, yeah. Foraging. You said that you were doing some research two years ago during the pandemic about gardening and how that in, it built communities or didn't build communities. What did you find out? Anything you can tell us? Um, I think gardening gave people something to talk about and build friendships online um, during the pandemic. I talked to to different people from all over the state about gardening in response to the pandemic. Hmm. Um, I would say one of the most interesting things was how people who maybe had a community garden or had the ability to make their community garden bigger or make their personal gardens bigger and we're close to um, food banks and things like that. There was, there was some um, overlap where, you know, they would get donations from, from gardeners and um, small farmers and be able to give that food, that fresh food to people in need during the pandemic. And I know um, at Met, there's a, an intentional, uh, it's sort of an intentional community. It's also, a uh, they do some work with the USDA, but there's a place in uh, Fox, Arkansas called Meadow Creek. Mm-hmm. Um, and the head steward there, her name is Rachel Reynolds. I already mentioned her. She's also a fiddle player. And so she she was one of the people that I interviewed who was gardening in response to the pandemic, who lived right in the middle of the Ozarks. Um and they, Meadow Creek, you know, has a big community garden and their food bank grew quite a bit. And that took up a lot of uh, time for the people living there that were already involved in that work. Um, so that's one example of of someone from the Ozarks that I talked to then. Um, other, you know, a lot of people, the more serious farmers that I talked to that make money from farming and, and things like that now have a lot of concerns about climate change. Um, and how that is going to be, um, you know, a, a big problem and, and something to adjust to 
and have to continue to adjust to rather quickly how in have the they coming years. That? How have they, how has that manifested for them that they could be all of the, you know, to be concerned about that? Is it water? Is it sun? Is it heat? Mm-hmm. Drought? Yeah. It's heat. The, um, the seasonal patterns have changed quite a bit in Arkansas. So, um, like we, we've had a really intense drought and heat wave throughout like late June through July in a lot of areas. So that's, that's been really hard, um, for the people I've talked to one, um, one family and this family lives in, um, the Washita mountain, Arkansas river Valley region. So that touches the Ozarks and often gets included as part of the region. But um, this woman and her husband have began raising insects for protein use um, as part of their adjustment toward climate change. Because um, so right now they sell to zoos and um, pet shops and reptile owners and and places like that. But um, there's a pretty large market of insect protein in other parts of the world. And Mm -hmm. a lot of scientists say that that is coming to North America in the next couple decades. Where where you can can buy um, dried crickets that um, that people use like protein powder. You know, they'll just sprinkle it on whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they, um, started with crickets and mealworms and found that crickets were doing both at the same time was too much and crickets were harder so they're just dealing with millworms right now this is um sulfur springs truck patch um is the name of this company and um but they plan to go to crickets again in the future once they feel like they have this this market kind of down so um so that you know that's one one particular way but it is about water and heat the summer lasts much longer now um than than it did even you know 15 years ago and that's true all over the in in like lots of different places but i would imagine that you're noticing it and the farmers are noticing it because the region is a fragile forest mm-hmm. there are more robust forests in the world but the the forests in the ozark are, are delicate in a way right. and that would tie into your naturalist study too i would think that there would be a connection in there too um yeah. Have you heard have you heard any stories about the significance of of rattlesnakes or rattlesnake rattles in medicine or in folk art or um, I've heard stories about fiddlers who put rattlesnake rattlers rattles into their fiddles, but I I've heard like 10 different reasons for it. <laughs> I'm hoping somebody knows. Oh, I don't know offhand. I I, I wish you'd warned me and I would have looked oh. it up because um, I've got some. It just, it just came to mind. Sorry. We're going to blame Eugene on that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it, it, what's funny with uh, public folklore versus academic folklore is that I tend to be out dealing with people right now. Yeah, and a lot right. of people in the Ozarks right now don't really know a lot of the older folklore Um and things like that i mean people do people understand like people will always viscerally react if you put like a horseshoe going the wrong day de- the wrong oh, yeah. direction um <laughs> you know like a picture of that up or something um but anyway so i'm out gathering more current information rather than studying mm-hmm. older folk tales from a more academic 
mm-hmm. uh, position. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I do, I, although I do like folk tales and I, you know, um, I get to them when I can. <laughs> so up, up here in, in Toronto, uh, a long way away from, from where you are, a lot of us, our only perceptions of the Ozarks and what they are and what they're like are from that darned TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, when, when you see that, is there something that strikes you as like, oh, this is such an awful, massive stereotype, or I can't believe they're presenting people this way? Or, um, how does that strike you? Does it seem accurate or does it seem horrendous? Or... Um, both. Okay. <laughs> um... I okay so I already kind of talked a little bit about how I I think that the Ozarks are you know a little more diverse and I I think this is a really good example of a show that doesn't really show any diversity for the Ozarks I mean we have redheads and um (laughs) why all white people mostly you know a lot of blondes things like that um so I, you know, I would like to see, you know, a, a little bit, at least some, some Hispanic people, things like that. Mo- and when I drive through the Ozarks now, almost every town with, you know, 2000 people or more has a, has a little Mexican restaurant um, <laughs> yeah. in it. So, so, you know, so that's sort of a, a part of the current Ozark culture that, that I think they really missed um, in that show. But I think the series uses pretty predictable stereotypes for the Ozark characters. So hillbillies tend to be, you know, sort of self-reliant, creative, they'll make do, that sort of stuff. But then you also have, that's the positive side, but you also have the the more negative, that they're violent, that they're backwards, that they're not well-educated. Well, Ozark hits all of those um, directly. I will say sometimes the Ozark characters sort of surprise me um, and that the the show itself, I find it fairly compelling, but the local characters, you know, they they continue to be foils for the character development and the story progression of the city dwellers who yes. always sort of are mm. able to outsmart the locals. Great, yeah. And, and I think that's why I'm angry at the show once yeah. it ended. Um, well, the, the story creator he described the bird family as an invasive species on the on ozarks so they knew what they were doing they were making a bad guy the family was a bad guy going in and feeding on the energy of of the region so i guess in that way it's successful (laughs) yeah but i still think that the energy that they gave the region was was lacking yeah and then the sexual uh, uh, the the idea of the sexual uh twist that that's another stereotype yeah, you know, it's unfortunate that they played up on that too. Yeah, I well, and then you know, Rachel um, loses her business. Isn't the the girl that owned the yeah? Rachel loses her business, um, and and isn't doesn't really see through that um, this urban person who's new and doesn't really seem like someone you should trust in my in my opinion, as someone who grew up in the Ozarks, like most people would be far more mistrusting, even if, you know, their monetary needs were, were sort of desperate. Uh, So, you know, so there's stuff like that, that I've, I found kind of predictable 
and and boring even though ultimately I find the television show fairly compelling and I don't mind to watch it right (laughs) that's a great way to put it very fair very fair you do not want to watch the last season I can tell you right now well good I'll keep (laughs) avoiding it keep (laughs) avoiding it it's it's better in the memory yeah you know I also think there the old there was an older um oh What's the other one that had Matthew McConaughey in it and they kept doing seasons? Um, oh. oh. And the last one was set in, in the Ozarks as well, or one of them was set in the Ozarks as well. You no, know, I don't Are you thinking know. of True Detective? Of- yeah, True Detective. Yes. They yeah. also used some, I thought they were going to do better, um, but yeah. then as the show went on, the, they used some of the same stereotypes for those local. Yeah. Especially in the, in the, especially the, finale. the women. Yeah. yeah. And again, the sexual deviancy. Oh, yep. you know, it's just like, come on, you know, it's a little, there's sexual deviancy everywhere. Right, <laughs> so exactly. it's not so deviant after a while. <laughs> yeah. The thing about the Ozarks that, that is, you know, probably most and least interesting all at once is that really and truly we modernized at about the same rate as everyone else in our region. Mm. Um, we fit historically, like it, it's, Yes, the region is unique and it does have some unique cultural practices, but pretty much every region is unique and has its own cultural practices if you start dividing up the the United States or whatever. So, um, you know, it's just that the media and the stereotypes have, you know, um, perpetuated and and. Uh, continued and and I think once that happens then local people when the nation and local people all sort of buy into that then it's a self-perpetuating thing you know um so if you if you tell outlaws through popular culture that this is a good place to come and be free in quotes (laughs) then they're going to come especially when the land is cheaper here than it used to be here than than other places right they're going to come and they're going to be free so true so you know so it's there's some good and some bad mm-hmm. i think we appreciate your giving us a glimpse yeah. of um of where you live and the people you talk to yeah. and um i think we need to come down and and uh, and look at some of this we need to get eugene out there fishing or something and see what <laughs> yeah. a beautiful area it is i would um, love to go down and, and, and see some of the i'd like to really get into the art i i did look and there's a number of contemporary art museums and a number of mm-hmm. craft and arts museums i'd really like to spend some time down there it's so pretty yeah yeah no there is a there are a lot of good museums um amber paradin is a good artist from the ozarks mm-hmm. uh, and olivia trimble she's a sign painter that i've talked to oh, i like that um patricia bergman is a metalsmith that i've spoken with there's a woman named sage holland who's a glass bead maker all right, we gotta um, check that out. So you, yeah. Um, so those are all, all wonderful artists um, that are, you know, living and making things right now. Um, oh, I had something else I was gonna say, but I forgot. Well, maybe remind us one more time. I want to read the book that uh, you had mentioned, the naturalist, the woman who was she was married to a oh. doctor. She was practicing maybe. Phys- um, Her name is Billy Joe Tatum. Yeah, she's pretty interesting. Um, and she has a wild foods cookbook. Yes. I mean, that's that's literally what it's called. Yes. <laughs> um, and then she also she and her sister um, did the uh, Ozarks collection. She wrote for the Ozarks Mountaineer for a long time. Her name's mm-hmm. Billy Joe Tatum. 
Thank you. Um, check her out. Oh yeah, especially wild wild foods. We oh. do a, a segment here on the podcast uh, called the Comfort Food Diner. <laughs> so we're always interested in different perspectives food. on food and yeah. cooking. Yeah, and the Ozarks are the um, focus of the Smithsonian Folklife Festival in 2023. Really? I don't know if you guys knew that. Maybe so yeah, that'll be in that. June. Yeah. <laughs> maybe the podcast um, needs to go. Yeah, maybe. So yeah, yeah so that's going to be really. Uh, I'm really excited about that. Really interested in in how that's going, and yeah. Lauren, thank you for coming on. I have a feeling we might need to reach out to you again in about two or three months when we do a little more research on the from the names you've given us and give you a chance to find out if you in your travels, maybe you'll hear about that rattlesnake. Yes, yes, sounds okay. good. Yeah, good. Thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. Really fun talking to you. You too. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, we're back in the posh studios of the agency podcast in toronto and chicago thank you very much lauren for joining us we really appreciate it we've learned lots and um we have lots more questions now now we have to do more research yeah we definitely do i hope we can go to arkansas and and, and uh really explore that would um, be fun i've never been to arkansas i've driven through a little bit of missouri yeah. uh never been to oklahoma driven up much of the length of illinois um, yes so it's, a, it's an area of the of the country of the united states that I, I don't know super well well you know it is very pretty i think you would love the countryside i have been through arkansas um and i've been through oklahoma many times just because of going to new mexico um you know and it's oklahoma's got a, a kind of a range of um geography some of it is foresty and lakey and some of it is farmy um so yeah it's it, it, it is a cool part to go check out we should go check it out i love that idea and finding out that the ozarks is much more varied than the tv show hey i've been doing some baking this morning i'm back in i'm back in toronto i'm back in chicago candy doesn't know where she is i don't know because sometimes i am running around but i've i made some brownies early this morning oh yum yeah, I haven't tried them yet. They're cooling on the counter. Is it so a special excited. recipe or a generic um, recipe? I think it's, uh, well, I got it. I, I, I'm going to try a couple of different recipes. I We cannot seem to figure out, uh, we want our grandma, my grandmother's recipe, Alma's recipe, but I think we lost that or we never got it or it got given away and wasn't maintained. And I really, really regret that. My sister and I regret that. But I did not put walnuts in this one. I'm making it to give away. So I thought, oh, we're going to take it to mom and dad. I'm making scones. And then I'm going to make uh, this bread, family bread recipe that mom and dad gave us. When we got married, they gave me a little letter, Chef Candy. And it's got this recipe that was passed on, brought from Poland. And um, it's a bread. It's an eggy milk bread. And, um, you know, she learned it when she got married to uh, Steak's father. And so now I've got this recipe and I like making it every now and then. So I'm going to make that today too. I had to run around finding um, yeast yesterday because I'm the only person that's insane enough to bake in a heat wave. <laughs> but I'm baking and the brownies look amazing. Well, I have to say that there was a time when I wouldn't tolerate a nut in my brownies. Oh, yeah, that's why I didn't put any no, in, because I think people feel really strongly. Yeah, I used to be really strong about that. I felt that 
Um, I like the, the single texture. I, I didn't like to mix textures. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I'm peculiar about, about my feeling about textures. But I've got well over that. And now I prefer brownies with walnuts. Right. Yeah, this is weird. So, I mean, I'm going to try a little corner of it, but it's, I, I like walnuts in my brownies. However, like, if you can get through into the dark web <laughs> this afternoon, yes. you're going to find the, the brownie internet portal and you could send me a sample of one of those brownies through the internet portal and I could tell you if they're really up to snuff. Okay, good. Because I am a certified brownie enthusiast. Yeah, I feel like I'm quite a snob too. Um, Whole Foods had some great brownies, um, and they were really good. But I, I didn't. They're they're a little expensive, and I feel like I can make them just as good. Sure, um, so sure. I'm gonna try this recipe today. It's from Sally's website. I'll share it online. Um, but she did not put in brownies, but she did do a thing where um she does melted chocolate. When you make brownies, do you use cocoa or do you use cho melted chocolate or both? Well, I haven't made brownies in a really, really long time. So I don't me, have an opinion on how to go yeah. about making them. I have a, I ha it has to have butter in it. And I like salted butter. And this recipe sounded right up my, right up my um, needs because it had melted chocolate. It had Dutch cocoa. And it also had chocolate chips. But I didn't realize that until I started making it. So I have chocolate chips. <laughs> I'm much better as a cook than as a baker, I would yeah. say. People are usually one or the other. Yeah, I feel other... very comfortable in the kitchen cooking with yeah. whatever ingredients are on hand. I can usually make something yummy. But right. baking, uh, you know, where you have to follow formulas and recipes. You do and have things. to follow. Yes. Uh, I general, have very little patience for it. Yeah, I think. And that's funny. I know my friend Trisha, who's hi, Trisha. She um, is the same way. Baking, you got to you got to measure. I mean, listen, I have scales for it even. Sometimes you have to weigh it. But anyway, I'm looking forward to baking today. And then we're going to drive around and drop some off for a friend, Helene, and for mom and dad. Maybe I'll give it to the guys, something upstairs to the guys upstairs where we are staying. And uh, that's about it, you know. Um, I had a fun thing happen to me this week. You know, I love being recommended shows. Sometimes I'm nervous because what if I don't like it? Mm -hmm. Well, I had a customer this week. So I had the craziest few days. Uh, as you know, I was staying at your place and I had to replace some ID I lost in the fire a few months ago. And so I stood in line for three hours outside and then I was inside for another two and a half hours. And then I drove back to Chicago. And so um, I actually put, put my back out very minor from all of that. And as soon as I went to work, then I went to work. I was so tired when I got back to Chicago, I slept 12 hours. I was sure. beat. Yeah. And then I get up and I went to work. I, I, I did some cooking, went to get some groceries and I went to work. And I was pretty worried because my back was out, but it felt, it loosened up unconsciously. I felt better by the end of my shift and I didn't even notice my back go back in. Anyway, I had a customer, Leo, and he, somehow, you know, it was quiet at the bar at one point. And um, somehow we got onto the topic of TV, which I always find really interesting with people you don't know very well. Anyway, he said he was obsessed with reality TV. And I was surprised because I don't think of, you know, I guess I tend not thinking of guys watching reality TV very much. You know, obviously Jeopardy is reality TV. Um, I had a great crossover because my real housewives, one of the real housewives is single and she dated somebody from Jeopardy last week. It was so exciting. I went crazy. 
And apparently tons of fans went crazy. Anyway, he recommended a show called F-Boy. F-Boy Island. And I was like, what? He goes, it's on HBO. And I went, pardon me, HBO has reality TV. That seems like, you know, kind of like they're lowering their standard. He said, no, it's, it's really good. So I checked it out and I'll bet VH1, this is the kind of show that would be on MTV or VH1, like a Jersey Shore or something. They must be pissed they don't have this TV show. And the big surprise for me was Nikki Glaser is the host. So I all of a sudden got pretty excited. Do you remember in November, I saw Nikki Glaser in Vegas and she was oh, preparing. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, she was preparing. She did, she did her routine. And it was about 45 minutes of um, talking about ass, eating ass. And talking one of the what? ladies we went to, yeah, eating talking ass, what? eating ass. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, well, you know, there is a kind of a shock comedy um, genre and um, and she's 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 frightened all the men around me. So I thought that was a good thing. Some when people a woman would say, how up, low can you stoop to get a laugh? Maybe that's it. But I think it's got some, I think there's something else going on, Eugene, which is really interesting is that guys are kind of known for this. You're right. Maybe they are stooping low for a joke, but she comes out and the guys next to me were so disturbed by some of the things she was saying that I was laughing because they entertained me so much. And she's very, very strong. She's not going to be, um, you know, she's not going to shy away from all kinds of topics and body functions and that. And, um, her work is very feminist. It's uh, pretty impressive in a lot of ways. And sometimes it wasn't funny. I will tell you that was what was kind of cool was that she has an HBO special, which I watched last week, or just before I came to Canada, it's called uh, uh, Good Clean Filth. And basically, I was excited to see it because I knew she had been working on the routine when I saw her in November. And, you know, sometimes you're lo- you, you, it doesn't mean that every joke is or any every gag is going to work. And um, it was fun to see this new routine recorded for HBO. She recorded it in maybe in Colorado. And um, the part about the ass was down to 15 minutes, but it still felt like 45 minutes. (laughs) Well, I I would really think that topic, even a few seconds of that topic was a long time. I mean, maybe maybe you really want to hear about that, but... I, I really don't care what people do in their bedrooms and yes, I just yes. don't need to play by play. Thank you. Just the same. Sure. Well, that's fair. And I mean, that's, you know, um, I get it. Um, some of us just do enjoy sort of basic sort of things, but the general special on HBO was really good. And she was pretty funny about a few things. And I watched it with Trisha when I was in Wisconsin and it was, we were curious to see it because we had seen her, practicing and building the routine in Vegas. So how cool is that to see somebody perform live and then see what the finished product is? It was pretty exciting. So I had a great surprise when I turned on F-Boy and there's Nikki Glaser hosting it. And I will tell you, this was the perfect vehicle for her. It's a really good vehicle. There are two seasons. I watched all of season one. I binged it like crazy because once I started watching it, I could not stop. So what's the the premise of, of the show? Okay, it's called F-Boy Island. And the premise of the show, thank you for asking, Eugene, because sometimes I forget what I'm talking about, um, is that there's three women and they're there to find love. And it's the location in season one was Cayman Island. So it's absolutely gorgeous. Tons of palm trees. Every time there's a drone shot, it's just stunning over the palm trees, over the ocean. And they've got these several buildings where people are staying. 
12 of the guys are nice guys. They're nice guys. 12 of the guys are F-boys. Do you know what an F-boy is? No, I have no idea. You've even explained it to me by text. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking okay, about. Okay, well, let me tell you. An F-boy is someone who is super sexually active, and they are going to do anything to get into bed with a woman. Uh, they make a good friend or an accomplice. At like, I've worked with many F-boys, and um, they are adventurous, fun, silly. What's the good parts? Um, charming. And... Um, up for a good time. The negative side is gaslighting, love bombing, sex addiction, and cheating. Um, that's not to say that all F boys are like that, but pretty much that is sort of what it is. I had never um, even heard that term before, and I still yeah. don't understand it. So, well, so I, you're, they, there's this name for people who will do anything to get laid. Is that it? Yes. Yes, and they're they're sexy guys. They're they're often in nightclubs. I've known a lot oh, of them. Oh, and who in are successful life. at getting laid by oh, doing god. anything? Oh god, they are. Oh, it's really tempting. It's very very tempting. And what happens is women don't know that they are an f boy. Oh they come think on. That, well, no, they don't know at first. You don't know until it happens to you. You you really don't, Eugene. It, it, it's a kind of a guy that's almost too good to be true. He's very uh, put together well, beautiful hair, beautiful beautiful clothes, um, charming, sexy, um, and really into you. Um, but the, some of the, the, um, the problem is that they will sleep with your sister, they will sleep with your mother. Uh, you won't see it coming. You won't realize they are. They're lying. Oh, candy, 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 candy. Yeah, I know. But it, it, you know what? They're, they're real people out there in the world. And they um, made a TV I, show about this. Yeah, well, I've definitely worked with guys like this, and I'm not kidding. They're really good guys. The um, but so they have a just, problem. Just back up a second here. So they've got to recruit people for this show. How do you yes. recruit? Like you interview people to determine yeah. whether, yes. whether you're yes. you're an F boy or yes. a regular yes. boy. Yes, exactly. And they and do a so, casting. But these, so these people who are on the show, they know that everybody knows that they are an F well, boy. Well, let me tell you something. Let me finish with the F-boy description first, okay? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then we'll get to the casting call. So um, basically, there's a fear of commitment involved with F-boys. They will not commit to anybody. They have a fear of commitment. Um, other parts, they're messed up, unable to find deep feelings and articulate those feelings. They're unable to connect with themselves on a spiritual level. They are competitive. But ultimately, their fear of commitment is a fear of abandonment. Okay, so uh -huh. they are like um, wild boys. They're like lost boys. They're like Peter Pan. Um, so there is something super attractive about them, and they are so good at gaslighting a woman and love bombing her and tricking her. And what and what, so, what part of what part of this makes for good television? Oh my God, Eugene! I really wish you would check out a couple of episodes. Um, Stay didn't stop and watch with me. He had to work yesterday, but he, he's been laughing about it in the background the whole time. Okay, so now here's the premise. They do a casting call, and I think you basically have to prove that you're a nice guy and prove that you're an F-boy. And the F-boys are very proud of proving it. They, they have evidence. They have camera. They do a casting call, and on these shows, you send in a tape. You make a tape, you talk about your life, you talk about who you are, and you talk about your goals. 
all right, now you've got the casting call, they interview the production crew, interviews all the contestants and the potential contestant contestants, and they vet them and check them out. Mm-hmm. Then they also have rules to the game. The audience and the women do not know who is who. So they come on the show, they don't tell us who's the F boy and who's the nice guy. And all of these guys are super good looking. They are insane. The women are off the charts. Okay. The second part is there's money involved, Eugene. Of course there is. So yeah, it's a game. It's a competition. I'm just trying to think about like some little, some little snippet of the concept for this show that, that I might be able to get my teeth into and, and think, yeah, yeah, I'd like to watch this, but so far, so far, it's just really unpleasant people (laughs) trying to (laughs) fool one another. Oh, that's great. Well, yes and no. I mean, it is a game and it is a competition and there are people trying to fool each other. There's three sincere women who really do believe in love. And um, they don't have a woman on who who just also wants to get laid. Oh, well, of course, women want to get laid. That's part of life. All people, even nice guys want to get laid. Everybody wants to have sex. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. Everybody loves sex and everybody wants to have sex. So you've got this premise. You've got a beautiful location and then you've got one hundred thousand dollars. So the winner is going to get one hundred thousand dollars. And um, now the winner being the, that's one of the, the that's one of the women who who's buying for the, the money. Women the women can get men. money too. Yeah, the women are going to get they're going to win money as well, but the F boys are going to get it's what they're told is they're going to get a hundred thousand dollars. Okay, so there's the start of the show, episode one. Um, episode one, the women come out, they look at the guys, they're like, "Wow, this is going to be fun," and then they'll say something like, "Y'all look like F boys because they all look real pretty." Um, basically I could tell the F boys immediately, but that's because I've worked with them. I'm familiar. They all have a certain commitment to hairstyle. <laughs> I would say the hair is a giveaway. Um, but it's not it's hilarious. Yeah, it is. It's, it's just to me, it's just hilarious that humans decided that they would make a, a television show about this. Yeah, I can imagine. But for me, um, I don't know what how people come up with television shows. Um, for me, it was fantastic. Um, I thought it was a great premise. It's so um, it's so pro women. It's uh, so much about the thing is you've got to remember. When hey, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa! It's rewarding people who get who are fooling women into sleeping with them. And so, why? How is that pro women? Oh, it's fantastic because a lot of things play out in this. First of all, the women slowly but surely are figuring out who's the F boy and who's the nice guy. So they go on dates. They spend time with each other. It's it's something like eight, nine weeks of time that they're on Cayman Islands in these beautiful settings. So well, on the first get, episode... Hopefully they get a free trip to the Caymans. Out of yes, it. yes, they do. And they're probably paid. Um, you, you get paid for being on these shows. And it is entertaining. It's entertaining if you're into people and you are curious about the human condition. It's a lot of fun because these are real, real people and they're in our lives. They're around us. If you work in nightclubs or maybe in your life. Well, I work in the restaurant business, so it's really a a huge part of the restaurant business. And I was young. I was 25. I met these guys. They're out there. Um, Like I say, they're great to have as a buddy. They're not good to, uh, to take seriously in a relationship. So, and all of the women had previously had an experience with an F boy. 
and been burned by them. And so now and, they... And, and they liked that so much, they thought they'd go on a TV show about it? Well, okay, I, I understand. I'm really struggling with this. Right, but it's not... Obviously, you're not a target audience. Obviously. It. Yes, you're a nice guy. You don't need to learn anything about it. So you uh, think. But, huh? So you think. so okay i guess i I want to describe what is the learning curve and what's so interesting about it what's so interesting about it is that nikki glazer for one thing has some great lines she's seen right through these guys she's not i don't think she knows who is who either but she has a great commentary and she hosts every episode and then every episode there's an elimination of at least three guys and when they get eliminated, then they reveal if they're a nice guy or an F boy. So to the women's. So it's like that's all there is in the world. Nice guys and to you, maybe, very- but that's not the point of the show. That's not the point of the show. I understand the morality and grasping for what can be good about this show. I'm going to try and tell you. Okay. I'm, I'm trying because to not everybody comes out by 24 years old. And they are well-adjusted. I want to go back to the key part. They have a fear of commitment. And that is a cover. That's a cousin. It's a flip side of the coin of a fear of abandonment. And there's a reason why they're F-boys. Okay? Okay. And so sometimes during the show, you find out why they are. And it's extremely compelling. And sometimes they were adopted. Sometimes their parents died. Sometimes... They were rejected by their family. There's usually some kind of storyline. And sometimes we find out about it with some of the guys on the show and sometimes we don't. Okay? So this fear of commitment is just a mask of fear of abandonment. And that is a compelling storyline because almost all childhood wounds, one of the major childhood wounds people have is abandonment. So, and these guys are fucking with women's heads. They're out there fucking up the world. And women get confused because they're looking for the sign of somebody who's into them and loving and caring. Meanwhile, that guy has got 20 phone numbers on the go and he's lying to 20 women. So we need to find out what is going on with this. It's very, very healthy for women. Young women are out there dating and they're being taken by these guys. They're like con artists. And they're very, very good at it. And so... Sometimes on the first um, on the first episode, they knocked off three nice guys, and the women are sad because that's their that's their chance for finding love is the nice guys. They know it's not with the f boys, but the f boys are so good that they 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 picked three nice guys and kicked them off, and so that was episode one. So the these women one, are genuinely trying to find love. So they they've gone on a show in which they know that the odds are against them because most of the contestants are what you call f-boys not most of them half of them half of them and so they've decided to throw themselves into this situation where they know it's full of peril well yeah i don't know if i would have done it i don't think i would go on a show like that i feel like working in a restaurant is already when you're single is already like that going to high school going to college is already like that these f-boys are in university they were at york university too trust me you may not have noticed it but they're there and, um, you know, you only come up against it when you're out there dating and single. And, um, and I mean, they can be terribly malignant or they can be, um, they can, um, they're definitely, definitely hazardous to females. They're definitely hazardous to females. They break a lot of hearts. 
Um, so episode by episode, you go through this and they go on these dates, they do these events, and then you're starting to figure out, oh, you're seeing behind the scenes. One of the guys confides in the woman and tells her who some of these F boys are because he knows who they are because he's staying in the house with them. Well, the second part is that when they get eliminated, this is the funny part. This is where it gets very entertaining, Eugene, is when they get eliminated, the nice guys go to this beautiful chateau with, you know, drinks and butt beds and a, and a swimming pool, and they're eliminated from the show. The, the F boys go to Limbro, and it's a fort on the sand, and there's like mats, and it's just crummy. Looks like there's almost no food. And it's boring. They don't have, you know, they're right by the ocean. It's still the Cayman Islands. It's still gorgeous, but they, they're in this fort. So it's a lot of entertainment. And then Nikki Glaser goes in there and starts talking to them and finding out, you know, how do you feel about being cast out? How do you feel about being a F boy? And slowly but surely, some of them actually want to change. And, you know, for better or for worse, some of these guys actually do seem to realize that they've hurt women. Whether they're not going to change, I don't know. Um, but they definitely have the conversation about their behavior and how hazardous it is for women, that they're totally fucking around with people's emotions and hurting people. And then three F-boys have decided or felt that they're falling in love with some of these women. Their hearts are being pulled. They're now in the position of being vulnerable because the women have the full power mm -hmm. and they're processing their bad pasts and their um, negative attitude towards women and trying to work it out. And the women are very torn up because they're dating nice guys who are super nice, but they're also dating these guys who are really skilled at, at dating. So it's a great, it's such a compelling show. Sometimes I was laughing out loud because it's pretty funny. And sometimes I was like, Oh no, this is terrible. That was very compelling. Uh -huh. For me, <laughs> yeah, I'll get right on to uh, watching that. Yeah, I don't think it will be your cup of tea. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. But it is a good show for anyone who cares about these things and dating and single life. I think you're going to love it. <sighs> yeah. So that's what I've been up to, and I've been sewing. I've sewn a bunch of stuff. Um, what have you been sewing? I've been sewing my resort wear. <laughs> And touching up on it and looking at it, I got some things donated by Trisha's mom that are really fun things. I've got all kinds of little notions and extras, and I've been practicing, practicing, and I've got sewing class on Thursday. Is that your first sewing class? That's going to be my first sewing class. Wow. So I've just been able to practice straight lines. I'm not doing anything high risk. I've made some pouches, like kangaroo pouches on my resort wear. Um, so what sorts of just, things are you going to learn in the classes? Well, we have to buy, we have a list of things we have to get. And two of them are patterns. And one of the patterns is to make a skirt, like a pencil skirt that has a slit and it has a zipper, which is extremely intimidating to me. And then we're making some drawstring pants, which I feel will be extremely useful and practical. So I'm excited about that. I don't, we're supposed to bring all of the, and then we have a list of notions. And notions are the things you do around the sewing, like a seam ripper like um, scissors, proper scissors. You need shears to cut fabric and shears to cut paper. And the two should never be crossed over. 
scissors for paper or only for paper and scissors for fabric never use on anything except fabric. Um, they're super sharp, super crisp. And I have all those things, partly because they were donated to me and I've been collecting them. So I, I don't even have to buy anything for the sewing class except those two patterns. So I have to go to the fabric store. Joanne's is, is aware that there's some students coming to buy these patterns. So I got to go get them. Isn't that well, funny? That's kind of exciting. I always like very. wearing new things. Yes. Yes, and that's and very, it's very practical, and it's a great tool for uh, for opening up another creative avenue for you. Yeah, yeah, and um, I've ordered a missing part. I need for I need a magnifying glass for threading the needle. There's a needle mechanism that threads a needle for you on the machine, and I just haven't figured it out yet. Um, and now I just cannot. I mean, fifty fifty, I can't thread that needle. Half the time, if it's, you know, if I get going and I'm feeling fresh, I thread the needle, no problem. But, but late last night, like, like little sewing kits, don't they have those little very light wire devices yes. for yes, I, the needle for, for threading the needle? Totally. And I use that for hand sewing, but I haven't been able to use it for the sewing machine. Okay. Yeah. Now it may work in there, but I don't know. I, I think I tried the first time and I told you I have all new needles from the repair shop. She gave me new needles. To use i was using too big of a needle so that's what i've been doing and i i had some ups and downs yesterday and um i got through it i just kept pushing so that's what i've been up to hmm. <laughs> well i've got some good news the yes. uh, the head gardener the the big uh cement head that uh that yeah. egg and i made when he was in town it, yes. his hair is growing yay let's see so, a photo when you can uh yeah so that the uh the, the hair is taken and now <laughs> now there's like fresh new growth coming up oh, kind of exciting. that is very exciting i love it yeah boy we got a lot of response about that head yeah people liked it people yeah people head. liked it yep no, i posted pictures today on instagram or last night of my uh shopping my blue sponges and butter on instagram <laughs> The list that the woman had written in the binder I told you about last week. Ah. Yeah, I did post pictures about that. So we both watched The Gray Man. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're oh, not a yeah. fan. So the Gray Man <laughs> is, it's a, uh, it's a 19, uh, sorry, it's a 2022 action <laughs> thriller film directed by Anthony and Joe Russo. Um, and it's based on the uh, 2009 novel of the same name by Mark Greeny. And it stars Ryan Gosling, Chris Evans, Anna de Armas, Jessica Henwick, Regé Jean Page, Danush. Oh, Danush is a one-namer. Uh, I don't know who Danush is. Uh, Wagner Mura, Julia Butters, and more. Oh, and Billy Bob Thornton is in it. Yeah, that's right. Um, and it, and this guy is it's uh, it's the first film we know it's already in a franchise. Oh, it's not just a film; it's a franchise already, and, huh? And this film, if you've been alive in the last thirty years, <laughs> you probably would have seen another franchise about the Born identity, the Born, I don't know whatever they called all the other films, but basically it's. A uh, dark op guy getting chased by his own peeps who yeah. are his own organization who are trying to kill him. 
and uh, action ensues. Yeah. It is exactly if I were describing the Bourne franchise, that's how I would describe it. And if I were to describe the Gray Man, that is how I would describe it. Um, right. I can't even begin to tell you um, <laughs> how derivative it really is. Yeah. Um, not only that, it's um, it has a tremendously um, bad script, poor characterization, um, lots of bad acting along the way. It's a trashy action adventure. Um, and uh, and I can't even remember what happened in it. And I just saw it last week. Yeah, I can't remember what happened either. I love the way it looks. I love the actors involved. It's a Marvel um, production. I think it's related to the Marvel movies. And not to the storylines, but the same people. Now, apparently it. they're going to do a whole universe around this film so that each of the characters in this film are going to have their own spinoffs. Okay. All right. We need well, more franchises in which we we just have more variety of the same pablum. <laughs> well, I love Ryan Gosling. I love Chris Evans. I, I love the cast. And I, I watched it. I was okay with it. But it, yeah, it didn't it didn't wow me. Whereas like the I, I talked about that action film. I forgot the name of it now, but it was with Ryan Gosling. They were racing cars. It was so unique and so exciting. Um, this this I, I understand why you say it was derivative. It wasn't pushing well, any new was. boundaries. Yeah, it wasn't pushing any new boundaries. It wasn't innovative, but it did look sexy and attractive. I, I suppose, I, I think maybe it will have some potential. Um, did you ever see the movie Drive with Ryan Gosling? No. I recommend you see that because that is such a great Ryan Gosling movie. And I think you're just going to love it. It's fresh. It's exciting. It's kind of sexy looking. And I think that would be a more rewarding film for you. Okay. Um, I'll, I'll watch it again too. I mean, the, the cast was fine. They were just doing a film that had already been done yes. by a different yes. set of actors. Yes. And really, how much chasing of a good guy <laughs> by your own good guys who are really yeah. bad guys yeah. you really need in one life. Yeah. I did think they did some visually fun things in the in the film. Um, but was that enough to carry it off? Probably not. But I, I did think visually it's worth watching. It, it They had some great cinematography and, you know, some fun ways to do cutaway. They were kind of cartoony and anime, but um, yeah, I, I get it. It was not a fresh story by any means. Um, but check out Drive. I'll watch it again, too, because I think you'll really love it. Drive. Yeah. I'll see if we can get Drive. Yeah. It's an older film. It's probably about 10 years old, but I think you'd like it. All right. I've written that down, which means that I, I may remember to check it right. out. Right. Hey, I watched Shania Twain. On Netflix, I watched Shania Twain, Not Just a Girl. It was a really good documentary. I really enjoyed it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Is, she, is, is this a recent thing? Yep, just yep. done, just made. Oh, okay. And does it yep. focus on her career such as it is today or in her heyday? Like both, in the day? both, both, both. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I had watched a, um, she had a little documentary series out when she had lost her voice. Um, so I was familiar with that storyline. But, um, I, you know, I just felt like some Canadian content. It's funny, living here, I will watch things that I might not have watched normally just to have some Canadiana, you know? Oh, okay. Um, so they go back to Timmins. They talk about her family life. And, and she, you know, is very... Um, forthcoming about her ambition to be a big star 
and to be sell lots of records and be a hit maker. Um, she has one quote, she goes, hits don't make themselves. And um, I thought it was really good. There's also some great guests. There's Mary Bailey, who was her mentor and perhaps manager. And then there's somebody I'd never heard of, and you've probably heard of him, Orville Peck. <laughs> Orville I was Peck. like, who the hell is Orville Peck? Um, he's not seen by anybody. He always wears a mask with fringe on it. So I was like, what is going on here? Anyway, I guess he's performed with her. Avril Lavigne uh, does some... Um, interviews and oh, oh my god my god i'm just looking at a picture i just had to look him up or I know. Back. his I mask know. is it's all frill yeah so, yeah fringe. so it's yeah. like um <laughs> i don't know it's like somebody who i don't know wants to be zz top or something i don't know i don't know but he's anyway, a south he's african got... country musician based in canada uh, yep. And he's never shown his face publicly. And I right. guess that's a shtick. I mean, uh, sure. a, a low straight jackets do that, right? They don't show yep. his face either. Yep. And, and, and hey, sells a few more records or whatever it is this guy does, yeah. you know, um, good for Well, Steak said he's huge. He said, he said I said, really? Because I've never heard of him. So now I know who Orville Peck is. And um, yeah, I enjoyed the documentary. And it made me think of another movie to recommend you watch. The Thing Called Love, which is a uh, Sandra Bullock, Samantha Mathis, River Phoenix, Dermot Mulroney are in it. And it's um, an older film, obviously, because River Phoenix died quite a long time ago. Um, it's early 90s film, and it's about um, singer-songwriters moving to Nashville and trying to make hits and get famous. And it's a delightful little film, and I think you would like it because one of your favorite actors is in it, Sandra Bullock. Well, I'm not against Sandra Bullock. <laughs> and I'll watch that too if we can track it. Now. I can watch the one with the bus like nine times in a row. I know. I know. It's not as action based as a bus. Yeah. And it doesn't matter. Even though I know what's going to happen, I can still watch the bus action. <laughs> well, Dennis Hopper is so good in that too. Yeah. He plays Dennis Hopper, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it is good. <laughs> So that's what I've been up to, kind of a lot, working and uh, baking. So I'm going to get back to my baking today. And I can't wait tonight. I'll probably watch season two of F-Boys Island. Yeah. <laughs> They're filming in San Cabo, Mexico for the new season. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll have to go Google to see if anybody is actually still dating anybody. It's highly unlikely they are. It doesn't happen on these dating shows that they ever get together and last, but maybe on even on The Bachelor, about three or four might have gotten married and stayed together. But most of the time, it, it doesn't work out because, like you say, it's uh, too much pressure. It's for the TV cameras. It's for entertainment. Why are they sacrificing their lives for this? But it's a learning experience. Because they want to be famous. Yes, there, that, there's that. I appreciate that. That's that's the, their motive. But for me, it's it's fascinating. It's a really good experience to see all this stuff played out. These poor F boys, I hope they learn how to love themselves and get over their fear of abandonment. Their childhood wounds. Okay. That's what I got. Well, you know, I haven't been doing much of anything except... Um, 
Well, you know, we Sheila and I got addicted to a really, really bad British cooking program. And, oh, uh, we yeah, shared I watched some of it. that with you. Oh, yeah. Uh, and and it's I can't say that there's anything good about this program, but <laughs> there's 40 episodes in the first season and we've watched them all. So <laughs> there's something strangely compelling about this. Oh, it's, it's called, charming. It's called Step Up to the Plate. And yeah, I thought it, it was super charming. It's it's a show in which they bring on two Michelin chefs uh, and they bring on three contestants who are home cooks and they give them like a cute team name. And the deal is that these home cooks have several months to practice an entire menu, a a uh, appetizer uh, a main course, and as the Brits call it, a pudding. <laughs> um, I, I have trouble getting used to the idea of a dessert as a pudding because I think of pudding as something very specific. But in any case, the, the home cooks are all practiced up and the Michelin chefs don't have any idea what the menu is going to be. And they have to, on no notice, cook something that can compete with the home cooks who have uh, right. practiced. And the host is a guy named, oh, Anton. And he's yes. a dancer. Right. I think he was on some British dance show. Strictly Come Dancing, I believe it was yeah. called. And yeah. so he dances his way out on stage and they dress him with shirts and ties that just were never fashionable ever. <laughs> it's just remarkable how that is dressed. Um, and then they have a guy who's a judge. And the judge is a guy named Lloyd Grossman. And Lloyd Grossman, I believe, was on British MasterChef for a number of years. And he is an American living in Britain. So he yeah. has a very peculiar accent, which is a kind of a combination between, I don't know, Boston with a little bit of British thrown in. Yeah, he sounds like my friend Fusion in New York, who's from the UK, and he has the exact same accent as him. And Lloyd Grossman um, yeah. has a history of being a punk musician who somehow got into the food business. So every time I see him, I think of him what he would be like as a punk musician so he comes out and he does the critiques and he decides without knowing who made which dish which one is better and if the home cooks win then they win a bunch of money uh -huh. and they they have uh the the chefs they they're they've got some kind of feed like they're they've got earbuds in I don't know if you notice that. So no. somebody is feeding the chef stuff and it might be like, okay, give a cooking tip here or throw an insult uh, over at the, at the ladies okay. across the way. Right. Um, right. So I, I think there's some of that, that going on. Um, the interesting thing about it is the contestants who um, are cooking some kind of ethnic traditional food mm. are the ones that seem to have the best chance of, of, of winning because they're making the recipe that's been handed down from mom, grandma, great grandma, whatever, right. uh, to, uh, to these contestants. And so they're making something which has been really proven as a traditional food for a long time. And that's pretty hard to compete against. 
Right. Even right. If you're yeah. a, a fancy schmancy yeah. chef. Well, you know, and I felt a lot for the contestants. I was worried about them being humiliated or embarrassed. And Especially because the chefs insult them. Yes, and it's it's so uncomfortable. You see, now I don't see any difference between watching Step Up to the Plate and F Boy Island. For me, it's very similar emotions, very similar premise. There's money involved. There's I, I would agree with this. I I, I I can see that, but for me, I don't see very much difference between it. Uh huh. Because it's it's got a lot of the same struggle. The there's like some of those chefs are like F boys. They're not good guys. They're manipulative. They're gaslighting. They're competitive, and they are insulting the the um, the, um, the 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 amateur cooks. Uh -huh. And then the amateur cooks are taking this huge risk to maybe win some money and and um, you know have fun and be on TV. And uh, you know, so I feel like very similar emotions watching both of them. Yeah, it's a kind of a lighter weight concept, I'd say. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. not messing with people's uh, deep emotions in the same kind of way. Not in the same way, except for the idea of humiliating yourself on TV. But yes, it's not it's not it's not dealing with childhood wounds in such. They're both childhood wounds, but not on such a deep level. I would agree. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, I can't say that this show is good. I really can't. <laughs> I can't even tell you fun. what's what's good about it. All I can tell you is we couldn't stop watching it until it was over. Yeah, I think it's a good show. I, I I would give it 10 out of 10 because when it's got these weird sets that didn't even make sense, I thought it was in the 80s or 70s, but it wasn't. It was in the zeros. In the 2000s. Yeah, and so it made no sense, but I think they were trying to make it look like an old school cooking show. Well, yes, and of course kitchen. they have to have flames because, you know, Hell's Kitchen has flames and MasterChef yes. has flames. Yes. So if you're going to do a cooking competition, you have to have flames. Yes. Well, I loved it because I love elevated dining and i love home cooking and you've got the best of both worlds there and the, the chefs are trying to you know like you said out with these homey folk uh, speaking of folk tale folk life um they're trying to compete with that folk life tradition of these home cooks and um i i just found it really compelling i love it i would give it 10 out of 10 i think it was a great show all of those sorts of cooking competition shows that deal with uh so-called home cooks um, really have underlying it the the idea that everybody who is a home cook really would like to be a restaurant chef. But I don't think that that's really true. And really, if you see restaurant chefs, they're clamoring to get on cooking shows because it's an easier job to be on a, a judging on a cooking show, making fun of home cooks than it is to actually do the hard job of running a restaurant, which can't be nearly as interesting. Well, at the point that those Michelin chefs are, the, the fun that's the part that's fun, and this happens on Top Chef too, is that they haven't been in working in a kitchen for a yes, long time. Exactly. They're managing the kitchen, they're picking the food, they're taste testing it, but somebody else is cooking it and doing all that hard hours of work beforehand. And they and, mentioned that a couple of times. It comes up yeah. now, now and then where they say, We don't really know how to do this. We've got a yeah. person who does this. Yeah. We've got a guy and, who does it, right? Yeah. And I think, um, you know, the charm is too that, I mean, have you ever gone, you know, you know, someone who's a good cook and somebody would inevitably would say, oh, you should have your own restaurant. Well, no, you shouldn't. 
No. It's such it's it's nothing to do with each other. The fact that you love cooking and baking and providing food, it's not that. Having a restaurant is a completely different animal. It really is. It's a it's a job. It's in a which, thankless in job. Which the goal yeah. is the 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 you know the the goal in your job is to make money. Yes. Really. And, and so, so it's you, you you have to be able to uh cost things, you have to be able to um I guess make the best out of cheaper ingredients sometimes in order to yeah. to to maximize the amount of profit and still balance that with uh giving people the kind of experience uh, that they want eating out. Yes. Uh, I, so I think um it's a little bit different to be a home cook who just you know loves to share food. Yeah. And I think the other thing is though that um you get those chefs that come on to Top Chef or any baking show or Iron Chef and Hell's Kitchen, what happens is immediately you are supporting your own brand and those restaurants become more popular. So your business, when, when you know, people, there's, there's a restaurant for Hell's Kitchen in, in Vegas. He already had that, but the customers coming goes up huge from TV shows like this. And all the chefs on Top Chef, Tom Colicchio and all the guest shows, uh, What's his name? I love his name. He's got WD-40 or something. I don't know if that's the name of his restaurant, but it's something like that. He's a molecular gastronomy. When those chefs go on to Bravo cooking shows, Wiley. I think there should be a law that says if you have a molecular gastronomy restaurant, you should put that right there with the name of your restaurant so that people like me can go, oh, yeah, okay. And just not go. Well, yeah. I mean, I I, I hear like, something. Oh, like I draw that. the line. If you have to somewhere, you gotta use your toe in the sand and draw a line in that sand. And yeah. foam is where I draw the line in my restaurant <laughs> restaurant experience. Enough. If you're Fair gonna enough. serve me foam, I ain't going. Fair enough. I you know it's so expensive to go to those restaurants. I can't imagine. I said that if my when my sister came to Chicago, if she really wanted to go to I think it's called Alinea. If she really wanted to go there, I would go with her. But it's like $700 or something. And I think that's before the wine. Um, so it's really a different uh, snack bracket. It's a different realm of eating. But those chefs come on to these reality shows and the competition shows and their restaurants get value. When even the home amateur cooks on Step Up to the Plate or um, British Baking Show, they get cultural currency. And, and that's a value in itself, too. Their family can be excited for them. They can be proud of them if they get far in the competition or just having the courage to go on a show like that. Um, it does take a certain amount of courage to go on with these shows and to put the cameras on you and, and be vulnerable. Um, you know, to be vulnerable is to be courage. So they're giving us a lot of entertainment, a lot of ideas of things to cook. I often go out and look for recipes after I watch these cooking shows. Um, I definitely get, um, you know, more insight into things like that and food and hear about things that I'd be curious to try from these cooking shows. They are helping us, uh, you know, humans love to taste a lot of different things where we're, we are omnivores. We do like a variety. It's not all species are like that, right? You've got the koala out there and she just likes her little eucalyptus leaves <laughs> and you get other bats. They just want to eat the insects. But we, as a primate we're a primate that wants to eat everything we can get our hands on 
I want so to change the subject briefly. Yeah. When we were talking about expensive restaurants there, yeah. it reminded me of something that's been in the news this last week. I don't know if you've seen it or oh. not. Um, a certain aging rocker by the name of Bruce Springsteen is on a tour. And apparently mm -hmm. some of the tickets on this tour. Okay, before I tell you, what's the most you've ever spent on a, on a ticket for a concert? Well, it, that's great. A couple hundred dollars. Um, I definitely heard this story too about Bruce Springsteen. $5,000. Yeah, they have tiered tickets. Yes. So you can get a $200 ticket or $250 is the cheapest, I think. I heard this as well. And I'm really worried about you too because I'm dying to see you too. They're going to Vegas and I just can't even imagine how much that's going to cost and how I'm going to swing it. But I really want to see you two in, in residence. Wow. In if they paid me $5,000, I don't think I'd go to see you two. I'm well aware you're not a fan of the band, but I love them to death. In fact, I, I wouldn't see Bruce at this stage either. Not certainly um, not for $5,000. And, and I know, you know, I know that there's, there's sort of a, a new tradition of this kind of thing. I can recall going to uh, a Prince show. Yes. And with our binoculars from uh, up in the rafters <laughs> where we were sitting, we yeah. could recognize um, genuine Canadian celebs who were down in the first yeah. couple of rows. And you know, know that they probably got to meet Mr. Prince afterwards and like do all of that sort of stuff. Uh, and you know that they were paid the big bucks uh, to do it. Yeah. It just, it seems like a lot of money to go to a show, doesn't it? Well, you know, when Prince was playing in Vegas, he had a residency there and it was probably in 2006 or 2007 and the tickets were $4,000 and Stag and I looked at each other like, have we lost our mind? Like I, we really, really wanted to go. And for about one second, we were kind of like, are we that insane that we would pay that? We decided not to. Uh, had I known he was going to die, looking back, Damn, I, I wish we had gone. I've seen Prince a couple of times, and it's one of the greatest experiences of my life. I am very grateful I saw him perform. Um, I wish I'd gone more and more. I, I, I never would have occurred to me that he would have such a short life. And yeah, such a I short have to life. sort of agree with you on that. Uh, we've, saw, we've seen Prince a couple of times as well. And, you know, generally speaking, in the last 30 or 40 years, I've grown to really not like arena shows. It yes. just is as a general thing. Um, but Prince, the Prince shows we've seen have really been an exception. Um, they really managed to handle the weird time delay and the fact that the performers are little dots down like a mile yes. and a half away from you on stage. And yeah all of that stuff and still make it visually spectacular and really quite a wonderful sort of experience. I can't say that most of the arena shows I've been to um, are, are that good. And for the most part, it isn't the kind of experience that I crave. And I realized this quite a long time ago. I used to go to a lot of concerts. You go to see like the big acts, you, you know, been to a bunch of them and looking back of all the arena shows that I've seen going right back to being a teenager really the Prince ones are the only ones that have been exceptional right. well I've been lucky I've seen a lot of great arena shows and I, I would see one again in a heartbeat uh, I yeah I'd love to see a small thing that's the part with the Vegas residency is that these huge 
artists are in a smaller venue and then they don't have to travel so much so they can keep their energy, protect their voices, keep their energy up, eat well, sleep well, and perform night after night after night in Vegas so we can all go see them in a smaller venue. That is the point of the Vegas thing is it's easy to get to Vegas. The, the airfare and hotels are somewhat reasonable, um, sometimes very reasonable. And yeah, you're going to pay a lot for the ticket. I cannot imagine what, what it's going to be. But um, Adele's there shortly. She's going to be doing a residency. I'd love to see Adele in Vegas too. Um, but I don't know anybody who would go with me. I, and, I think um, that the, the Springsteen thing, I think it, it became a news item because he is like, uh, he has this persona as uh, the working man. Even though sure. he's a rich rock star, like all the other rich rock stars, he has this working man, blue collar sort of persona well, about him, which yeah. I think makes for a better news story. Yes. And his music reflects that his songs are about that kind of culture and that that class system that's in the, the United States. It's he's a he's writing about the, the, the crisis in 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 the capital society of the United States. I mean, maybe um, he understands yet, now what my father used to say, which was that Robin Hood was right. If you have to steal, <laughs> steal from the rich, because there's no point stealing from the poor. Yes. Right. Yes. So maybe he just knows where the money is. But I, I, like, I want to go back to, I've seen many, many arena shows where they, I also try to get as close as possible. I try to get the best seat. And I've been very lucky that I've been on the floor in front of the pretenders, Iggy Pop, uh, David Bowie. I could touch them if I reached out. So I've had a lot of luck on that of seeing these great performers that are able to handle a big room and I've been close. Um, but I've also been at some of the less close seats, not in the, not the nosebleed. I think I was, no, I wasn't even in the nosebleed with Madonna. Uh, we had, we had okay seats for Madonna. Um, and they definitely have figured out how to do a lot of these shows to make you feel good. There's also something else going on. It's not just, you're there to have a, in a way, this, if you're lucky, you have a communal enjoyment of the event with the people around you. You're all dancing together, you're happy, you're excited. Sure. Um, one of the best things about a Madonna show is seeing all the women coming with their husbands. And the husbands looks, the women are all dressed up cute. They used to party in the 80s. They still love Madonna. And these husbands look like, I'm here and I'm getting laid tonight. Because I'm, <laughs> they just look like this is the greatest. My honey buddy loves this Madonna, uh, and it's going to pay off for me later. Yeah, um, Gwen Stefani was an incredible concert show. I, I, I just, I've had so many concert shows that were amazing. The Clash played huge arenas, and they were mind blowing. Audio Slave, um, Soundgarden, Aerosmith. Um, run DMC they all played huge venues now I've always been the kid that gets runs down to the stage and tries to get as close as possible you can't do that like you used to when I was you know very young but you you know if you're lucky you can get a pretty good seat um, it does cost a lot of money and I wish it didn't but it does now Springsteen I think $250 to $5,000 yeah and buying into that it is a little disappointing to hear that he would agree to that um, yeah. seeing as yeah. he has represented that um, working class hero. His songs reflect that. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I'd pay the 5000 personally. And, you know, actually, I probably, when I was, when I was like a, a young man, a Springsteen show was a big deal. I never went to one. 
but it was right. a big deal because he yeah. played a generous show. He would oh god yeah four hours or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And um, his music had uh, had some guts to it. Mm-hmm. I've never seen the Rolling Stones. If somebody gave me tickets for free, I'd go. I, I, it doesn't mean I don't love the Stones. I do, but I'm not going to buy a ticket because it's too expensive and. Um, but if I had a free ticket, I would go. Um, yeah. You know, with you know Madonna, I, I saw thing... I saw Springsteen when he did his Super Bowl halftime performance a few years ago. I don't yeah. know what year that was. You were there? No, I wasn't there. I watched it on oh, TV. Oh, on TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. TV. Yeah. And it just, he just seemed like a really aging rocker trying to be a younger man. I just, I got a really bad feeling. It's like, you, you need to get a new shtick, Bruce. It's just not working for you anymore because because you look like you're 60, you don't look like you're 20, you know? I and think he's 70, yeah. So I like the, all the sort of rock star moves, I just think look funny to me. They just look like yeah. out of place. Um, yeah. But I think if you do enough, if uh, spend enough of your life doing those arena shows, you get used to the exaggerated movements that you need to make so that oh. you, you can excite the people in your audience. And they also work out and stay fit to do those shows. You know, they have a thing. I saw him in uh, probably 2004. And I mean, we screamed like like Elvis fans. It was so exciting. I loved every second of it. I, I cried. We cried. We were so excited. It was really a great experience. Um, and, and that was well past his early 80s stuff, but uh, it was very good. He came out on stage and he said, um, and it was during the NHL playoffs, and he came out on stage, he goes, I have three words for you, New Jersey Devils, and we all booed and cheered at the same time, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I, I like seeing music. I love seeing live music, big, big venue, small venue, whatever. You know, if I, if I was able to, I'd see a lot more these days. Um, you know, there's a we kind used of a, to go to a lot of live music, and our go to place here in Toronto was a, a place called Hughes Room, which back in the day was located on uh, I don't know if the address was Ronson's Vales or Dundas, but it was right at that point where, where Dundas and Ronson's Vales uh meet. But um, we always liked it there because. Well, it only fit maybe uh, you could stuff a couple hundred people in there, I guess, if you were stuffing, but mostly yeah. probably had a lot less. And yeah. it just seemed like a really friendly venue with good sound to hear music, not to go see stars, but to hear music. I understand. And, but and somewhere you know, along the way, I became a lot more interested in hearing music than seeing stars. Um, right. But when I go to a concert in an arena, I'm not going to see a star. I'm going to enjoy music and see it live. It's got, I, I don't care. It just happens to be that other people find love them too. And isn't that a great communal thing? Oh, how, thank God. 20,000 people can agree on one thing. We all love Bruce Springsteen. We all love Prince. We all love Madonna. That's not a bad thing. That's a fun thing. Yeah, sure. And it's not because they're stars, it's because they play music and they um, write Yeah, music. but you know, when you play in a large enough venue, and I guess this is really what my point is, um, you need to, you need to, in a way, dumb down what you do. You need to be able to cope with a time delay. You need to be able to simplify, make your work more anthemic 
to uh, to appeal to the larger audience. It's not a very intimate experience. Well, it is for me. It feels very intimate. Really? Um, yeah, because I'm communing with my neighbors as well as the musician and enjoying and dancing. It's dancing is in, intimate. It's one of the most intimate things we can do. But we have a different opinion and that's okay. <laughs> a different experience on it and that's okay too. It's okay to have a different experience. We can't, we're not cookie cutter people. You know, we, we come out differently. It's true. And yeah, I would freaking love to see um, you two or someone in a small venue. It's just, uh, you know, you'd be very lucky. Apparently Prince would show up at uh, small venues and play. And those people were very, very lucky. Good for them. And I've seen some great musicians show up in small venues when I used to work in nightclubs. I saw Bowie in a very small atmosphere, and it was fantastic. But I wouldn't say it was more fantastic than seeing him in an arena. Hmm. Well, it's different. Yeah, I guess recently... You know, the pandemic kind of got in the way, but the only, uh, totally. the only live show we went to, and we had lots of trepidations uh, about it because yeah. we we're still freaked out by COVID. Sure. Um, was we, we had tickets for uh, for Nick Cave and Warren Ellis uh, at Massey Hall. And, you know, Massey Hall, I really like Massey Hall. I like, you know, Nick, Nick Cave referred to it as the balcony place. <laughs> it's the balcony place. And I guess if yeah. you're a performer, that's how you would see it because, yeah. you know, there's so much balcony. There's two levels of balcony. Um, but also the sound is really great. And um, you're, you're among a smaller group of people. It, it seems like a, a lot warmer kind of environment. Um, but I know that those guys have also been playing arenas and I don't know what the show would be like in, in an arena environment. Um, yeah. You know, I, I imagine it would still be pretty good because it was a pretty awesome, awesome kind of show um, in lots of ways, in part because uh, it was surprising musically. Um, the collaboration that they're doing is really unlike much of anything that I've heard from from any musicians out there i think they've got a really interesting thing going at this stage of the game yeah, yeah. Uh, but we we don't get out to clubs when well, we haven't for a really long time not since well before the pandemic and huge yeah. closed and um you know and more and more i'm interested in music that's uh, let's let's make some let's make some yeah yeah well i think that's a wonderful thing too and the good thing about um making your own music and old-timey music and 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 such is that a lot of times it is in a smaller venue well and it's also it's something that we own together uh yeah. and i think there's something really beautiful about that i think that's part of my my love of traditional music is we own it together it's yeah. not it's really not about anybody getting rich yeah, I get that. I get that. <laughs> I'm an omnivore, even musically. <laughs> I like all different genres. Speaking of which, I've been really enjoying Beyonce. So oh exciting. Gosh, she's in a bit of trouble, eh? 
Is she? What happened? Oh, um, she uses uh, some, they refer to it in the news articles as an ableist slur. Oh. I believe that the word used is spaz that she uses it, I believe in one or two cuts. Um, And there's, she's been under a great deal of criticism and she's going to re-record the, uh, the places where, where she's made those references. And apparently the, that, that material was co-written by Mr. Drake. Um, And um, they, uh, she's going to re-record it without the, um, the slur. Okay. Well, good to see a learning curve. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, obviously, I she did didn't not realize notice that, that, that word. she was. I, yeah. She was doing anything that I don't think she was deliberately trying to um, offend people. Is what I guess I'm saying. Oh, but, I don't think clearly so, she's no. recognizing that people are offended. So yeah. You know, yeah. learn along the way, and good for her for saying, "Yeah, I'm going to re-record this." Yeah. I haven't yeah. heard the the material. I don't know what it's like. It's I, really good. Um, uh, it does have a lot of house feel to it, and um, I mean, I did not notice that word in it. But you know, I'm still listening to the album for a couple of days. Sometimes, you know, like I'm famous for listening to a song a lot and not hearing every lyric. Anyway, it takes me a while, so I'm still, you know, going through the album and enjoying it. Um, she says a lot of other things on there. <laughs> I'm surprised that that's the word that they, that that's the thing that bothered somebody, but Hey, life goes on. It's art and we're all learning. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny about Drake. Cause he played um, a person who was in a wheelchair in um, Degrassi. Hi. You right. Always forget that he was a child actor. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, well, you know, these are learning curves. Yeah, they, they are. Uh, but you've been enjoying the, uh, the, the new Beyonce music? Definitely. It's yeah. so good. So good. I, I really am enjoying it. All right. Yeah. And it kind of makes me want to listen to a bunch of other music, too. It's, that's always a good feeling when you hear some music. It just makes you want to start listening to other stuff, too. Oh, Yeah. I, I read somewhere. I think it might have been the same the same article about the um, the ableist slur uh, yeah. that uh, people are are titillated because it it has references to um, uh, uh, her husband's possible infidelity. I think. Oh, I see. Uh, apparently i don't i don't it's know i mean i haven't because, heard it i just i read it read it on the internet right yeah i, I love that you know it's funny because um i can't say where my source was but it was a pretty good source um that has worked on the tour with them and said it was those are lyrics it's art there's there's absolutely you know they're they're using that kind of rumor of infidelity i don't know now Stag said he thought he heard jay-z say he had had infidelities but um, I'd heard that was like all just show just to keep the albums, uh, the realism of more, the albums. Or recordings or whatever. Yeah. Or whatever yeah. you sell today in music. What do you sell? You sell downloads, I guess. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I'm on a, I'm, I'm on a, a, a subscription. So I don't know. You know, I pay monthly. Right. For music. 
And um, I don't know how that's played yeah, out, but that's what I've been the, doing uh, right now. For, for, for music is going to be in the, in the future. You know, I, I think we've evolved to the, the, the digital model, which um, I guess was, was inevitable in some respects, but um, you know, what it does is it, is it cuts out the possibility of, um, selling CDs or selling records, which right. um, I really enjoyed supporting musicians in the in the club setting who were trying to make a halfway decent living. We um, have CDs. Sorry, we play CD. We play CDs here in this household, and we were playing records until the fire. They got damaged. Um, yeah, but and, in in general, yeah. I think it's not such a good business anymore as to sell CDs. Right. I, I don't think they sell nearly right. like they like they did back in the back in the day although i'm sure there's some some like old farts like me who uh who still listen to cds stuff yeah. <laughs> i think so you know i like having an album i like looking at album art i like reading the lyrics i mean you can get a picture on on digital too well, that was but... the nice thing about records too is that oh, i love it you had a bigger surface to put art and notes on yeah, loved right it. and the cd it just was really not a very it's not a very um sensual <laughs> yeah i guess you could say that Sensory, i mean it was just this, I mean, people have tried to do better packaging on cds yeah. but yeah. it just isn't a, a medium which is um as uh as the structure of it it was much more um what's the word uh easy to uh to to do album art and that sort of stuff. You could have yeah, like easier, a bigger, and, and then yeah. you, could have, you could have the record could be a clear record or a white right. record or right. a green record or whatever. Um, so I liked media. all that. Yeah, it was all, uh, mixed media, interdisciplinary. And I suppose, you know, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about um, music videos is that they're interdisciplinary and they give you more content. But, you know, I, you know more content is always better. And that's what I do miss about albums is, is sitting there and looking at the album while you listen to the record, seeing what was inside, what was produced. It's a lot of fun. These days, I consume most of my music content from the YouTube machine. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah, I can see that. I do a little bit of that as well, but especially when you've got um, alternative music sources and a counterculture of folk music out there, you know? Um, well, yes, I can actually access all kinds of musicians that I admire um, and their work where some of these people may not have ever recorded um, music that they can sell. So right. um, it's an opportunity to hear music usually played live. Right. Um, and it's amazing what's available as well. Recordings that are old recordings which you just aren't going to be able to find that you know they've been out of print for 40 years or 50 years right you know there's people put it up on on the youtube to try to perpetuate that music to try to, yeah. to keep it yeah. available yeah you know there's um there there's a a youtube channel i think it's called golden age music maybe i'm just going to check that but i think oh no i can't really 
Hmm. I don't know. I, I don't like to be able to, to be looking stuff up while I should be talking. That's okay. <laughs> I guess I should have tried to cover for you. I thought you were gonna. I thought you had it right there. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, 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 I see this all the time. Well, there's, there's a couple. Well, share there's with a, us a later guy, on social. A guy named BP Monkman, yeah. who, um, who has posted much of the catalog of the Métis fiddler Andy Dejarlis. Love it. And his band, The Early Settlers. Uh, yeah. And it's a, a great source of um, of finding that material. Uh, and there's there's another uh, one. I think it's Golden Age Music or something like that, where they have a lot of Canadian old-time fiddle music, which you'd just never be able to find if it wasn't mm -hmm. up there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, pretty cool. Pretty cool. Well... I hope people will write us about things that they've watched or at thinking about. The agency concerts podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. I checked the email this morning and I was shattered, Candy. I was shattered. <laughs> oh, there I'm were sorry. no emails for us. I'm so there was sorry. Lots of ads for thank you for your subscription and thank you for buying this and uh, SEO stuff and upgrade your website there was all of that stuff right right so please write us make us feel better <laughs> so we won't be so pouty exactly and we'll all be right. back at you next week okay bye